This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 33, Part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, Nolan here. We're continuing our discussion from last week with Moshe Cohen. So if you haven't already listened to part A of this series, you're going to make sure you want to do that first. Let's jump into this episode. I, I tell students that the word I want them to, to approach things with is, huh. Anytime somebody says something, I want them to think, huh. Huh. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. What, like, what's there? I'm curious. You know, and that's actually where being a scientist is really helpful because scientists are naturally curious. We want to find out what's going on. We want to dig in. We want to look at the data. We, we want to, we don't understand something. And that just gives, makes us even more curious to try to understand it. So see, now we're back to the first question. That was maybe that was the link, the, the scientific background and the engineering background, just the, the pursuit of the question. Uh, that's, isn't that great? I think that's part of it. And, you know, I think the other thing is I, I tell people that after being a physics major at Cornell, nothing scares you. <laughs> right, there is nothing i will ever do in my life that is that is intellectually as difficult as that was and uh that that kind of opens you up to to trying things and, and being being you know less nervous about them yeah. the other thing it does is it really heightens your your analytical problem solving okay. right you become both in physics and engineering you're you're just an analytical problem solver and you look at big problems you break them up into smaller problems and then you work on the smaller problems and put everything back together. And I found that enormously helpful, both as a negotiator and as a mediator. Yeah, I can I can see that. Right. So we've talked so much about kind of the emotional intelligence aspect of negotiation and, and certainly can see the analytical problems like disciplined problem solving approach being so important too. Kind of change gears here, Moshe. I know that in the book that you highlight Thomas Kilman's negotiation styles between time and energy. What are kind of your observations in and around this? So, you know, the, I love the Thomas Kilman model. I love the TKI. I think it's one of the better uh, instruments out there. And if you look at the original model, it was all about, you know, competitiveness and, and, and collaborativeness, right? The need to get along versus the need to get ahead or as it's often referred to in the negotiation field is, is outcome versus relationship. And I think it's a very useful model. I, I think it describes uh, what people do quite a bit. But if you look at it more closely, it describes more what people should do rather than what they're actually doing. It says, if I care more about outcome than relationship, I should compete. Well, I gotta tell you, there's lots of cases where I've seen people care a lot more about outcome than relationship, but completely avoid. And then you're like, what's going on? The, the, according to the model, they're supposed to compete, but they're avoiding. So, you know, I, I thought that this idea of outcome versus relationship isn't complete. And I wanted to ask what else is going on. And the two parameters I came to are time orientation and energy. In, in terms of time orientation, 
the question is, do we care about what happens right this second, or do we care more what happens downstream? Because i got to tell you, if all I care about is what happens right this second, then I'm either going to avoid the negotiation altogether because what I care about right this second is not engaging in it, or I'm going to be very competitive because what I care about is gaining short-term gain, and I'm not so worried about what happens down the road. If I have a longer time orientation, then either I'm going to accommodate because I care about the relationship with the other party, or I'm going to collaborate to try to create as much long-term value as I can. So that's how I thought about time orientation. But then the second parameter is, is interesting because it's become a big topic of conversation. And the idea is that negotiations take energy. In fact, they take a lot of energy. In particular, competing and collaborating take an enormous amount of energy. I mean, think about it. You have to go buy a car or you have to negotiate for a house. How much emotional and mental preparation and energy does that take? You know, you have to bring all of yourself to that because it's going to tax you in all sorts of ways. And collaborative negotiations, you're managing a bunch of complex interests. You're trying to figure out what you're doing. You're trying to figure out what the other side needs. You're trying to come up with creative options that will meet both sets of needs. You're trying to manage what your alternatives are in the background. You're doing all of these things that are very, very energy intensive. And the problem is we don't have the energy. Right. Now, I call that the ugh factor. I mean, that's when you have to go call somebody to negotiate, and you're like, ugh, I just don't have it in. <laughs> but it gets actually even worse than that, you see, because your energy level doesn't stay constant throughout a negotiation. It usually starts off pretty high, and then it fades over time. Right? I've mediated day-long cases, and i got to tell you, people negotiate very differently with each other at hour one and hour seven. Hour one, they're like, let me at them. Hour seven, they're like, make it stop. Right? <laughs> they'll do anything. They give away the store just to end it. And yeah. by the way, I've seen some mediators use that unethically. I've seen some mediators essentially lock the door behind the parties and try to wear them out so they come to agreements. And I personally find that coercive, and I try not to do that. But the point is, you need to manage your energy when you're negotiating. And if your energy starts dropping to the point where you are tempted to give away value just to have it end, that's a really good signal that you should take a break. You are no longer in mental shape to conduct this this negotiation. And, and you need to find some sort of break. And I don't care if that break is five minutes to get a cup of coffee or two weeks to, to regroup. You know, different negotiations allow you different breaks and require different breaks. But the idea is you are no longer in shape for this. And you need to recognize that and do something about it. So, you know, by imposing those two things on the, on the original Thomas Kilman model, I was hoping to, to be able to look at it, not just from the point of view of what you should do, but also from the point of view of what you're likely to do. And once you realize what you're likely to do, you can try to align those two. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, you know, there's so many stressors that come up in negotiation and those would be drains on energy. I know you talk, you talk a bit about this too. So taking a break, one way to manage those stresses um, I would assume like acknowledging, just acknowledging that I'm stressed too. I mean, are there other things that I need to do as, as I see those stress stressors coming up and, and draining, draining the energy that I need to be able to negotiate effectively? So I, I'd say these stress factors show up in two different ways. One is something that happens in the immediate moment that makes you stressed. And, you know, I talk a lot about that in chapter two under the emotional response curve. And there, you know, taking a break is something that you absolutely have to learn how to do. I tell people that, some of the most important words a negotiator needs to learn how to say is thank you, let me get back to you. Hmm. 
right? The other party is going to put you under so much pressure when you're negotiating. You're going to put yourself under so much pressure when you're negotiating. And you need to be able to call a break and say, thank you, let me get back to you. I mean, imagine uh, the other party gave you a proposal and says, here's our proposal, what do you think? Well, if you say yes, you might have agreed to something bad. If you say no, you might have walked away from something good. But if you say, well, great job in this proposal, let me take a look at it and get back to you, you have regained control of that negotiation. So that's absolutely something you need to learn how to do. You can slow things down in other ways. Instead of responding, you can ask questions. You can say, ah, thanks for this proposal. I get paragraph one and two. Paragraph three, I'm a little confused about. Can you go through that with me? While they're going through paragraph three, you're calming yourself down. Yeah. Another thing you can do is just stay silent, right? Well, as long as you're not saying anything, you're not saying anything you regret. Right. <laughs> so you need to learn how to slow things down in all sorts of ways to deal with the immediate stressors. But then there's some longer term stressors that really impact and they go together with the fears. And in fact, the stress factors act as amplifiers on your fears. So for example, a big one is conflict. Can't tell you how many people have said, I hate conflict. I avoid conflict. I don't like conflict. And then I ask them, so what don't you like so much about conflict? And they say, it's uncomfortable. I'm like, what's uncomfortable? Well, the other person might get upset or yell at me or, or cry. I'm like, oh, that's emotional pain. Or they say, well, the other person might retaliate. Well, that's tangible hurt. Or the other person might not like me. Well, that's that's a relationship damage. So what happens is conflict acts as an amplifier that amplifies any, any fears you have. Right. Another big stress factor is uncertainty. And do you ever wonder why almost every kid in the world is afraid of the dark? Right. It's because they can't see what's there. And what you can't see, you can imagine. And we can imagine some pretty scary things. Mm-hmm. So uncertainty also amplifies our fears. And the last one I like to talk about, in the book I mention a whole bunch of others, but the other big one that shows up is power perception. If I perceive myself to be at a lower power position to somebody else, then I'm afraid that they might inflict relationship damage, emotional pain, or tangible hurt on me. And uh, that, that increases my fear. So in the long-term sense, you want to be aware of what's, what you're afraid of, but also what stress factors matter to you and under what circumstances they show up. And then in the short term, you need to slow down and, and, and manage your emotions. So if those stress factors uh, pop up, you're not reacting, you're responding to them uh, strategically. So Moshe, if we could, I want to dig into that power perception one just a little bit more. I cheated because I've, I've looked at some of your material on LinkedIn and we'll make sure that we link um, to so folks can follow up with yours. And is it is it minutes with Moshe? What is it? What, what's your little your short clip? That's really good. And you talked about recently you talked about uh, negotiating with bullies. And that's the one I was kind of hoping talk about when power is just perceived or it's or it's real. It's something we want to deal with. But yeah, so we'll make sure we kind of link link into your is it, oh, yeah, it's the a, hashtag is two minutes with Moshe with the two name. minutes with Moshe. Yes. And it's actually a total lie. None of the segments have been two minutes. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> this one was over like it was four, but that was my longest segment ever. But and, and that's when that's when we throw out the scientific background and we're saying, eh, two-ish minutes. Right. You know, physics are always talking about <laughs> order of magnitude, and it's within an order of magnitude. So yeah, it's, you know, it's been fun. I do these, these videos that are um, all about negotiation. And each time I try to answer a particular question, and it's often a question that is either relevant to our current situation or that a lot of people have asked me. 
So this time I thought about how do you negotiate with, with a bully? And the first answer I came to is you don't. You know, the way bullies operate is they feel like they have the alternative of not needing to negotiate with you, of coercing you into doing what they want. And very often when you attempt to resolve things through negotiations with bullies, that just empowers them. That, that just gives them license to use even more power to try to co- be even more coercive. So initially, one of the things that you need to do is take that off the table. You need to alter the bully's alternatives. So the alternative of just getting what they want through fear and coercion is not as attractive. And you know you can see what's going on in the world. There are attempts to do that. Now, once you've evened the tables, then you want to see if you can create opportunities for dialogue and for face-saving opportunities for people to back off. But you don't do that initially, because initially they'll just, you know, the bullies will just take that as signs of weakness and will push even harder. Uh, it was actually a very hard video to think about and make because it's it's such a difficult thing, right? Bullies will make you feel like you're gonna suffer tangible hurt if you don't do what they say. And you have to stand up to that. You have to alter it. Now, very often, bullies are bullies because they are strong. And the question is, how can you strengthen yourself? And you know, one of the things I talk about there is the, the importance of alliances. I may not be powerful to stand up to the bully myself, but me and you know, 200 of my friends might be. We, so I got to push you just a little more on this one. I think it's, it's really interesting. You certainly get the, the kind of the idea when we're talking about events going on in the world today, uh, Russia, Ukraine, other examples where we see, you know, bullies. Does it change? So if we go back to kind of your, the, the sense of your book, does it change when it's in the workplace and the person I'm either is a bully or I'm perceiving to be a bully is my boss. It, what my chosen response is there in action. I mean, I, you know, unless I leave this job, I'm kind of, I need to be able to negotiate with this person. Does, does that change the calculation at all? It's a difficult situation. You know, I feel, I think people feel very often trapped within their jobs. And I've had conversations with people who ask me for tips on how to negotiate with their boss. And my conclusion was leave. There's not going to be a good solution here. You have to leave. And the question is, when do you leave? How exactly do you leave? How do you prepare yourself before you leave? So when you leave, you end up somewhere better, but you need an end game because there is no good outcome with this person. You know, I don't know if you've heard the saying that people join companies and leave bosses. The number one reason people leave their companies is their boss. And I got to tell you, we do a terrible job of training bosses. You know, I do, I do leadership training as well. And it's amazing how often people are just thrown into those positions without getting the direction and support they need to actually become successful leaders and, and to, to manage their people effectively. But, that is, you know, ultimately what you might have to do when it comes to negotiating with your boss. The first thing I like to remind people is that no matter who their boss is or how they operate, your boss is someone with needs. Your boss is someone with interests. And you need to go to school on your boss and learn what they need. One of the most impactful articles I had to read when I was in business school was an article called Managing Your Boss. Mm-hmm. I love that article because it was such a reminder that if I can understand what's driving my boss, I now have tools to 
manage that relationship and negotiate, negotiate effectively with my boss. We have the, the opportunity as employees to observe our boss, kind of like our kids, you know, observe us as parents. My kids know me better than I know me. Right. It's true. Right? For, from infancy, they've had nothing better to do than watch me. <laughs> and, as, and and they know, sorry, they know if they're going to get what they want, they need to study us, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, that's a great point. The same thing goes on with employees and bosses. You know, you have much more time to watch your boss than your boss has time to watch you. And you need to know, for instance, what days of the week is your boss easier to talk to? What time of day is your boss easier to talk to? Is your boss one of those casual people that likes you to walk into their office or are they more formal and structured and need an appointment? Do they like to talk in their office or over a cup of coffee at the cafeteria? Right? You need to learn all of those things about your boss and that helps you conduct much more, much more effective conversations with your boss. And then you need to really understand what defines your boss's success. Right? Who is your boss looking to? Who is your boss accountable to and needs to look good to? And if you can help your boss do that, then you can pretty much write, write your own ticket in a lot of other areas. So, but if your boss is a bully, if your boss tries to you know, work with you through fear and, and intimidation, I think, first of all, you have to approach it with a great deal of limit setting and self-respect. You have to learn to say no to your boss. You have to learn to say it nicely. But if you say to your, no to your boss and your boss fires you, good. That means you shouldn't have been there. If you say no, no to your boss and your boss doesn't fire, fire you, that changes the relationship and gives you some power in that negotiation. So you, know, you have to learn how to set limits. And that's true about many relationships, but certainly if you're negotiating with, with an abusive boss, yeah. you have to say, this is not something I'm going to do. And I had a friend who was asked by her boss to do something that she considered unethical. And she said, I'm not going to do it. And if you try to make me do it, I'm going to quit. And he backed off. Yep. Yeah. I've had that situation in, in coaching too, where we go through a course and I get that question. Uh, and in fact, I just recently had a student say, describe a situation in which they left and now they're, they're kind of recycling it could I have done something else? I think we reached the same conclusion at the end, which was walking away was the best thing. And it's, it's difficult to do. You talk in your book. I want another, like probably my second after the narrative piece, my second favorite part of it was your description, the discussion on walking away. Cause I feel like a question that Noel and I get so often is when do I know when I should walk away? And you that you do a nice little chart layout, which really helps with I think the the thinking of my my alternatives and my interests, and it just lays it out so well. When you get the question, "How do I know when I should walk away?" How do you answer that one, Moshe? Well, the first question I ask is, "What do you care about?" Right, that gets to the interests. What are the things that are important to you in this situation? And the second question I ask is what happens when you walk away? What are your alternatives? And it's amazing how often people go to negotiate without really thinking deeply about those two questions. But without those two questions, you're terrified because you're afraid that something awful is going to happen if you walk away and therefore you can't walk away. And you're not sure how to decide because you're not sure what's really important to you. 
One time I was mediating a case in small claims court. It was an insurance case. And this guy got a really bad offer from the insurance company, but he also had a really bad case in court. So I asked him in private session, what do you want to do? And he said, I'm going to refuse this offer and I'm going to go to court. And he said, I know that I don't have a good case. And I know that if I go to court, I'm likely to lose and get nothing. But if I accept this, this offer, I will never be able to look myself in the mirror again. Hmm. Right. And I got to tell you, it may not have been the choice I would have made under the circumstance, but I, I totally respected it because he knew what was important to him. And he made a very deliberate and rational choice based on his interests and self-respect was his number one interest. And I completely respect that. Absolutely. So you need to know what's important to you. And then you need to do some really solid research on what's going to happen if you walk away. I mean, as I tell my students, if you refuse this job offer or if you ask for more and they rescind the offer, are you going to sleep in your parents' basement? Are you right. on the street? Do you have another offer lined up? Or did you just win the lottery and you don't care? I mean, depending on what, what what's waiting for you out there, you have a completely different approach to walking away. But the, the main point is that if you feel like you can't walk away, you have zero power in the negotiation because the other side can just keep pushing you until they push you to your limit. The second thing I talk a lot about is how difficult it is to walk away and especially how difficult it is to walk away in that moment. Yeah. That moment where you're making the decision, do I stay or do I go, is excruciatingly difficult. And, and you know, I, I don't know if you saw the book, I call it jumping out of the plane which is something I know nothing about. You, you guys might know more about that. We, we know a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we, we both jumped out of a plane once a or twice. Bit. So yeah, we do. It's <laughs> a good I analogy. I know nothing about that, but I imagine, maybe you can enlighten me on this, is that when you're practicing jumping out of the plane on the ground, it's a lot easier to do than when you're 10,000 feet in the air. <laughs> and it's always easy when you're not the first <laughs> one. Like as long as you're the second, third, fourth, and you're just following the helmet in front of you, it's, it's too easy, but when you're the first one and you're standing in the door and you're just looking out at the horizon, you're looking at all the trees go by, that's when it's terrifying. So. Right. so so I think in a similar way, actually walking away is really difficult when you're negotiating. And the longer you've been, and you, and you know this, the longer you've been negotiating, the more committed you become to the negotiation process, the more you really emotionally want it to reach an agreement and the harder it is to walk away. And on top of that, sometimes when you walk away, bad things happen. Your alternatives aren't so good. There are costs to walking away. So then the question is, how do you get yourself to actually do it? And the first thing you need to do is know what's, what, what you're walking away into. Think about it ahead of time. What I suggest to people is that before they go to negotiate, they should sit down, shut their eyes, and imagine that they tried, but the other side was so unreasonable they couldn't come to a deal. And then imagine the state of the world at that point. You know, when, when, when my wife and I negotiated for our house, when I first started thinking about what happens if we, uh, if we don't get this house, my, my first thought was, we'll never find a house. And we looked <laughs> for a year, we saw 55 houses. But then the longer I thought about it, the more I realized, one, we already have a house. We're just looking for a bigger house. And two, that half our search was just for us to figure out what we wanted. Hmm. And will, will it be a real bummer to lose this house? Yes. But is it the end of the world? No. And that puts you in a different mindset. I'm not saying always rush to walk away, 
but be okay with it. Because if you can't, you really limited yourself. That's great. Hey, Moshe, so I know that one of the things that I struggle with is the active listening. I know in your book that you highlight the listening triangle. And I think one of the other things I struggle with is when to listen versus when to advocate. And so I'm hoping you can, one, kind of explain the listening triangle, and then two, kind of talk about, okay, when can you transition to actually start advocating? You know, I started talking about the listening triangle probably about 20 years ago when I was teaching mediation. And over time, it became a central piece of what I talk about. The way the listening triangle goes is you start with a very short, non-judgmental, non-leading, open-ended question. And you keep it really, really simple. Questions like, what's going on? What happened? What do you want? What else? Like what? And? So now what? Tell me more. You know, why is that? So you ask very short, open-ended questions. And then you zip it. And you stay silent until the other person says something. Now, all of this is very difficult. Staying open-ended is really, really hard for people. If you monitor yourself, you'll be stunned how often you think you're being open-ended, but you're actually asking a string of closed-ended questions. Keeping your judgments out of your uh, questions, that's really, really difficult. I'm a mediator, and I struggle to do that. And then really not leading the other party with your questions, you know, asking questions that are so open that they can go anywhere, you know, that is also very difficult. Staying silent is so hard for so many people. That's actually something you can practice and it gets better with practice. I used to be uncomfortable with silence and just through practice, you you get better at it. Do you practice, is that something you practice with your wife? Is that the advice you're giving us to practice silence with our wives or <laughs> just teasing? So silence is probably gonna help you in that circumstance as well. Um, <laughs> but specifically, I practice a lot on the phone because what I find is that on the phone, I can distract myself without being observed by the other party. So I'll be on the phone and uh, I'll ask the, the other party a question. And then I have a lot of model planes because I like airplanes. So I'll, 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 I'll practice landing one of my model planes while I'm waiting for them to answer. Do wh- whatever it takes to distract yourself um, because it's very hard for a lot of people to stay silent. But the thing is that the open-ended questions are powerful, but their power actually grows with every second of silence that follows. So if you can ask open-ended questions and let them sit in the air between you and the other person, that person feels increasing pressure to say something. And whatever it is they say, you're going to want to wait for it because it's going to be valuable. You know, the old rule of thumb in negotiation is whoever speaks first makes the next concession. But there's actually even a lot more value than that, that the other person will say something and you're going to learn something from, from what they say. Also, you get in trouble in negotiation from talking, not from listening. So, you know, the more you can slow yourself down, hold yourself back, stay silent, you know, turn the floor to them and uh, give them the opportunity to speak. Once they say something, you got to put the plane down, you got to start listening. And that's really hard for us to do. I mean, what are we doing instead of listening? Much of the time we're talking, we're thinking, we're thinking about what we want to say. We're thinking about our next brilliant question, which now we know only has to be only two words long. So hopefully it doesn't require a lot of thinking. And, and we're judging what they said before, which means we can't hear what they're saying now. And we're just distracted. We're all trying to multitask. I can't tell you how many of my students are, are looking at their uh, you know, Instagram while I'm trying to teach in class. But you can't listen and do that at the same time. So the problem is if you don't listen, you can't hear the other person's interests. And 
their interests are so key for you to be able to negotiate effectively. And hearing their interests is a really hard thing to do. That took me a year of trying to get good at. And then once you hear their interests, you need to reflect things back. I talk about three different ways of reflecting back. First one is parroting, using their exact words. Sometimes people call that mirroring. I like parroting better. The advantage of parroting is that they get to hear themselves. It's easy to do. The disadvantage of parroting is that, first of all, it doesn't confirm understanding. I could repeat what you said, even if I have no idea what you mean. And do it more than a couple of times, and it's really annoying. And the other person will catch on that you're doing something. So don't parrot too much. Most of the time, people right. paraphrase their idea, your words. That both confirms understanding and is much more conversational. But the third and most powerful way to do that is called reframing. And as you know, reframing is reflecting back with a purpose. The main purpose we use reframing for negotiation is reframing positions to interests. Yeah. And that is so hard to do. That's what took me a year to get good at. But once you get good at it, it becomes your primary tool. And then right. you got to do it again. you got to keep going around that triangle. So the funny thing is I started teaching this about 20 years ago. And I put it in PowerPoints and I taught it in my classes, but I never wrote it down anywhere. And then I started seeing it show up. I remember somebody said that they saw a presentation in Har at Harvard where someone talked about the listening triangle and they attributed it to me, which was nice, except I'd never written it down anywhere. And <laughs> so finally, it, it's now chapter nine of Collie Wobbles. I'm so glad it's written down. <laughs> so that, that was kind of the history of those. Of those. That's, that's good. So then when can I advocate? I think we talked about active listening aspect of it and everything like that. So when is it time that I can actually put my interest and let me and i'm build on that too nolan i think it's a great question i might add and advocate effectively right with some sense of you know in a logical way in a, in a convincing or persuasive way so I, I think that you know you advocate for yourself in little bits throughout the process but it's especially important to wait until you know something about the other side's interests before you advocate because you know people some sometimes Ask me, how, how do I know, how can, how can I sell better? And I'll give you my personal example. People will call me up and they'll say, Moshe, we're, we're looking for a negotiation workshop. What can you do for us? And I don't tell them what I can do. What I ask them is, why do you want to do a negotiation workshop? Right? I mean, let's pretend you did one and it was great. What's different for you? What is difficult now that you're looking to make easier? What's not effective now that you're looking to make it more effective? I spend the entire first half hour of the conversation using the listening triangle and understanding from them what the problem is. And then I advocate. And by the time I've done that, they've given me the words I need to use to make the sale. So if you focus first on the listening, and once you have a sense of what's going to be persuasive to the other person, then advocate for yourself, you're going to be a much more powerful advocate. But the other piece of that is you can't be afraid to advocate for yourself. I, I, you know, I do this exercise with my students where I have them go out and ask for stuff. And it's very, very difficult for them. We're so, we're so afraid that you know, bad things will happen if we ask for stuff. And the only way to get over that is just practice. Take every opportunity to ask for things, and especially those opportunities that make you very uncomfortable. And over time, you become more comfortable. Moshe, thank you so much for joining us. There's a ton of things in this podcast, so I'm definitely going to go back and listen. Um, want to first turn it over to Aram and see what uh see what yeah, you Yeah, Moshe. First of all, thanks so much. I I knew that today would be a rich conversation, uh, and I know that we've kind of stretched out over two programs, so I I know everybody's going to appreciate it. So first of all, thanks for being with us. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. 
And in terms of my takeaways, yeah, there's there's so much. I, I just think, you know, in terms of becoming more self-aware, the ability to slow things down, to to reflect, to write things down, to get better at journaling and reflecting, and even ask ask for feedback. I think that's that's that was a powerful takeaway for me. In terms of the, I think Moshe, what you said was, you know, the stories we tell ourselves define our experience. And we have, we get to be the author of our narratives as we carry that into negotiation. I think that's, that's a powerful realization for people. And so I encourage you to, to take that one on. And then, I, and then my last one is just the piece about closing our eyes and thinking about what walking away. I think we talk a lot about walking away from a negotiation and to be able to close our eyes, imagine what that would look like. A powerful thing for people to consider so that you can really use that as a, a lever of power in your next negotiation. Thanks again, Moshe. Well, thank you. Thank you again very much. And I'm, I'm hoping that this, this helps people in some ways. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very, very, uh, I very much appreciate the invite. That's it for today's episode. If you haven't checked out uh, Moshe's book, Kali Wobbles, highly recommend it. You can find it on Audible. You can find it on Amazon. We'll have both links to that in the description notes. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. 